Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. We made this. Welcome to the Starlight Ballroom. Hey. Hello and welcome to Shipwrecked and Comatose, the podcast about Red Dwarf on the We Made This podcast network. My name is Mark Adams and welcome to series seven of our long running, not as many episodes on episodes of Red Dwarf as you might think, podcast on Red Dwarf. With me at this time is my co-host, Kurt. Hello, Kurt. Hello. I am back. I am back, baby. And we are being joined for the next two episodes by Carl Bryan. Hello, Carl. Hello, Mark. That's right. Mr. First Two Episodes is back. (laughs) (laughs) Any reason why you've chose these two, Carl? I I think it was the, uh, I wanted to be part of uh, the last, well, uh, at the time, what we thought was the last Chris Barry. I thought that was a really good one to have. And uh, yeah, I think it's, when we go to it, I think I'll talk about how much I think it held up. If you hadn't worked it out, we're doing series seven of Red Dwarf. So for the next eight weeks, you're going to have us, well, at least Kurt and me. Eight weeks. Eight not weeks. Six, not six. No. Eight weeks. Do you actually know why they did that? It had never been eight weeks before. Yeah. They wanted to go to syndication. Yes, it was. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. There was, was it 52 episodes? I think, 52. Yeah. Because so, if he, uh, I think I was, I, was, cause I was looking at this, more, this morning when I was doing my sort of research for things. Because originally, uh, after we'll get into things like Rob Grant leaving and things like that, and Chris Barry not wanting to go on anymore, there was, he was like, well, like, let's just end it at the end of six and maybe come back to it later. But he got talked into it to do two series of eight because then he could go to syndication and then, you know, he could send it out to American stations and things like that. And, and uh, yeah, I think it works. Yeah. Well, there you go. So there was a reason. But yeah, Series 7 is five years on from Series 6, considering how incredibly popular Series 6. We all know the reasons why Mm. there was a pause to some extent. Yeah, but I don't think we need to talk about them, really. It went from me being a young teenager to my first year at university. So it was a very, very different experience for me watching Series 7 compared to all the other six, all the other six I watched in my early teens again and again and again and again. Whereas it almost felt like a revisit for me going on to series seven. And it was a completely different experience. What were your experiences of that five-year gap? Was it a similar thing for you too? I don't know really. I mean, it was 97, wasn't it? So I was in second year of sixth form when this came back out. So you were looking... You know, I was starting to go out properly at that point. X-Files was kind of at its peak, 96, 97 as well. The film came out, mm. X-Files film came out in 1998. So there was a, you know, there was a lot of hype around that. Um, 
and I, I do remember, I was thinking, I was watching, I've been watching quite a lot of Seven and Eight recently, um, just in preparation for this. I thought, you know, I'm going to give them another another shot. What I found was that, it, that I tend to remember them slightly differently, depending on what the episode was. Because, And I know we've discussed this in the past, but the extended versions, the remastered versions, there were yeah. so many different versions that I tend to re- recall most of the extended ones more than I did the, the laughter track ones. And then what going back to them and listen to the ones with the laughter track on, um, it was a different experience. So it is it is a strange, it is a strange series for that perspective. And I and I have some some thoughts on series seven as a whole and, and moving forward up with Doug Naylor as a whole, which I'll talk about. But yeah, I mean, around that time it was, you know, it, it was, I was starting to get into party mode and you know, time was starting to get short for me. And there's a, there's a couple of overlaps as well with uh, another podcast that I do or have done in the past. Um, but we'll get to that when we uh, when we find out the origins of uh, Dave Lister's birth. So, but that's for another episode. Yeah, I think I want to go back quite significantly to talk about things like the um, extended versions, the non-extended version, the remastered versions. But I also want to hear what Carl's experience was about the whole five-year gap thing first. I don't think it felt like five years for me because I was about fifteen at the time when this happened. And I think because I'd got the videos by that point and I'd been watching them fairly consistently, I'm very much, if I start watching something, I will watch it again and again and again. And I remember at that point I would have been sort of watching, uh, cause I think only be a couple of years before this at the first, uh, oh no, it would have been when series six came out was when the first few series came out on video. So I was mm. probably getting myself caught up with the videos and going through them again and then probably by the time i'd got to that we were getting ready for seven i do remember this being launched with there was a t-shirt which was the four of them in starbucks cockpit but there were skeletons wearing their outfits and it said back from the dead i remember that t-shirt okay very vividly and being being like oh it's coming back it's coming back and being quite What's the word? Not tre- is it trepidatious? It's about what was coming, what was coming after five years off. You know what's going to be happening. Is it going to be the same? Because you knew about. I think I'd saw it on an issue of SFX somewhere. There's like, oh, people are sort of deserting. I think was the use was the word used. Red Dwarf and Chris Barry was going. Rob Grant was going. Um, obviously, there've been the issues with Craig Charles, but he was back. You know, is he going to be? Is it going to be the same? Is it? Is it going to be? easy enough for me to watch in the same way, you know, you can't listen to certain music or you can't watch certain films because of the people who are in them. But yeah, I I remember this and talking about the remastered and the extended versions for this, I've always previously seen the TV versions with the laughter track. Um, So for this one, it was actually by accident, but I thought it worked out quite well. I've watched the one that doesn't have a laughter track uh, for comparison. So now I've seen both, same as same as you have, Kurt. And it, it's a much different experience. So I'm probably going to go into it as we go go on there, but it is a lot different on this one. Yeah, and I think what we're going to do for Series 7 is we're going to look at the TV versions. For this particular episode, but only this one is at least my plan, I've also had a look at the extended version to give me an idea of what the differences are. I basically have watched every single version of this episode that I could, including the commentaries. 
but I'm not going to do that for every, every single episode. But what I thought we might do is we might kind of do a bonus episode at some point where we talk about the series as a whole as an extended version. We don't have to do it soon, though. I think it'd be nice to look back at it after Series 8, because I think a lot of things that they attempt in this series gets fine-tuned in 8 with the more the more sort of bigger scale of things with sets and things like that, introducing a lot more characters um, and putting them in different situations. Because I think this one kind of breaks away a little bit from previous series in that Yes, they are still on Starbug, um, but this is they get up to a lot more stuff. But it is a really odd experience that there isn't one. I mean, you know, things like Netflix replacing songs in series mm. one was something we noticed. But for this, there are so many different versions that it's it was actually quite a discussion on mm. our um, chat group on how the hell we were actually going to cover series seven. So for simplicity's sake, we've gone for, like I say, the TV versions as they were broadcast. So add a spanner to the works on um, on them, because I've got the DVD in front of me now. And, um, you know, what I've been doing, like you, Mark, to be fair, is I've been watching the Netflix versions when they're on Netflix, and then they weren't on there anymore, and I downloaded the UK TV versions. And the UK TV versions, I've got some weird cuts so mm. it's a, it's another version on top of Good another grief. version as well. And I'm like, whoa, there's a whole scene. that I haven't watched the episode yet, so I can't really give this 100% um, like truth to them to matter. But there's a, whole episode, there's a whole scene in one of the episodes coming up where there's a scene with Crichton where he goes through some stuff. And it is on an extended version, so I'm just interested to see if this particular scene is in the TV version or not because it makes mm. a massive difference because he says a joke about it later on. It's like the joke doesn't make any sense because you haven't seen the scene. Mm, so yeah. it's it's interesting in that perspective. So I am I'm having to like pull the DVDs out and watch them. And I, I have a, a portable DVD player that I have to plug into my laptop because I don't have a DVD player anymore. Oh, I do, but I just don't have Perfect. things. So it's really difficult for me going, right, I've got to go and watch these episodes. But mm-hmm. it is what it is, you know? Yeah, I was the same. When they took them off Netflix, that was when I bought the Blu-ray. And again, there's so much stuff on that Blu-ray that there's so much potential to watch all the Blu-ray extras and, again, talk about those at a later date, which I think I'd like to do as well. Yeah, There's so much Red Dwarf stuff that we can do that we've got specials forever is basically what I'm saying. Well, it's like Red Dwarf. Red Dwarf doesn't seem to, like, finish ever. It will never finish. It will always be left on a cliffhanger. And yes, you, you never know if it's going to finish or not. So... Talking about cliffhangers, the end of series six, that was a massive cliffhanger. And you and I, Kurt, actually covered a almost in-between episode that was written, what, 25 years later? Called Into the Gloop, which is set between Out of Time and what we're looking at today, Tika to Ride. So if you do want to have a listen to that, scroll back down the, uh, the feed and look for Into the Gloop. And I think you can actually get the Into the Gloop script for free online if you look as well. They definitely sound like album tracks, don't they? Take yeah. it to ride, out of time, Into the Gloop. You, you can have them <laughs> as your first three tracks of the album. Perfect. Oh, a lot do work, don't they? The Inquisitor, Better Than Light. It does sound like a bit like a Genesis sort of. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Genesis. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do feel like Into the Gloop does fit really nicely 
into the timeline. It slots really nicely and works. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Series 7, Episode 1, broadcast on the 17th of the 1st, 1997, Tika to Ride. And for the first time, no, for the second time, because there was one for the Inquisitor, there is a cold open. A 28-year-old lister does his log, number one, and talks about the ending of Series 6, and there were some clips from that final episode, and he explains that they killed their future selves and destroyed their time time drive, which reset the timeline and the camera blows up. Yeah. I think that he did, they deliberately did this because in in the same way that series three threw away all the, what happened at the end of two, like where are the twins? What happened there? This felt like a more visual version of that with just like, just, just reel it off, Craig, just just run it (laughs) off. Uh, Because, Essentially, I don't think the fans were that bothered about a big explanation. The time drive, you know, they shot the time drive there and fans will know what that means. You know, mm. they've, you know, they've watched other sci-fi as well. It's, it's probably a massive trope of Doctor Who over the years. And, oh, they destroyed the time travel thing, so nothing happened because it never did happen. And, yeah, it's... Yeah, I mean, I can't remember which other episode it is, but there's one where... Lister said, oh, it's not going to have happened, happened, because it hasn't happened, happened. Yeah, it's happened, actually. You know, that kind of thing. I think it was the Inquisitor. That's it, the Inquisitor. So whenever it comes to time travel, they've always had a very flimsy, like, let's just skirt round it a little bit. <laughs> it does seem a bit simplistic, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey reset button, but mm. that wasn't such a cliche in 1997. No, no. It makes sense as well. It does make sense. It's just, just about. It's just explained by the worst possible person <laughs> to explain it. Yeah. Um, and it, it is. It, it's totally designed to do that, isn't it? It's totally designed to, let's get this out of the way. Let's mm. move on to the next episode um, and then take it from there. Like you said, like in their series three, you know, they, they're not they're not renowned for doing that. And something that I've only just thought of then, and I'll mention it now, and I know that you haven't seen the Dave stuff, Mark, but they do kind of reference some cliffhangers in the in the later seasons and that seems to me like it's like going with the times that people are and then start to like get to that point of like mm. i need this answering right and uh, they do it they do it in a rather clever way and it'll be interesting when you get there to see how how that kind of transpires we'll get there eventually eventually and i'm still i'm still vouching for watching uh, Red Dwarf t- 10 Trojan together because we have to do that okay have we have to see at least Trojan if not the entire entirety of Red Dwarf 10 yeah, so it's uh, so is it is interesting the, the camera itself that was somebody's uh, camera that they found in a, in a loft or in someone's house or something they actually put together. Brilliant. So I thought that was, that was good, you know, using because it looked like it looked like a well, in, as it happened, a bit like the Sapruda film, like an eight millimeter camera. Or yeah, something. it was quite 
quite a small camera. So Crichton greets Lister and they discuss how the paradox has meant that the timeline is unstable. And for me, does that mean that they've just explained all of their goofs and continuity errors with one line? Oh, possibly. It's a nice little get it, 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 it? it rang to me that when, uh, if have either of you seen the first of the J.J. Abrams Star Treks? Yeah. Have I seen the first of the Star Treks? Have I seen the first <laughs> of the J.J. Abrams Star Treks? So you weren't seriously asking me that question. It was worth it, the look on your face. <laughs> you like Star Trek, Kurt? Yeah. I like Star Trek. <laughs> how have they how they explain that way of oh we've gone through it's black hole isn't it we've gone through a black hole and therefore now uh, the timeline can be anything it's completely white clear it was it reminded me of that but obviously this was many many years beforehand and the way this to me I thought was funnier because this was explained away so much quicker than the whole the time problem and that quite went this has happened in in a kind of like so. Get used to it. So this is what this is what the case is. So this is what's uh, what's going on now. I I quite enjoyed that. I thought it was good, and yeah, it it was interesting to especially where we go from from here with what's going on with Starbuck and things like that. It's basically a massive excuse to say we built the set again and we're going to make <laughs> it look different a bit. So we, yeah. Yeah, we're going to have um, camera placements because we've got no audience, so we can have a wider set and we can, mm. you know, um, light it differently and, and all mm. that kind of thing. So, which in itself, I just wanted to mention this at this point, probably part of Chris Barry coming back was the fact that it wasn't going to, going to be filmed in, in front of an audience. Mm. That was that part of the stipulation. It was kind of, you know, a lot of things had to happen for them really to get back on board with it. They just wanted to like, clear 12 to 14 weeks and, and I know, Mark, you mentioned listening to the commentaries. They mentioned that quite a bit in the commentary where they're saying, mm. you know, I actually really like it. And, you know, it's really good. It, it comes across really well without the laughter track. I might not, I might have different opinions on that, but yeah. um, <laughs> the, but it is that this wouldn't have happened if it was in front of a live studio audience. It just, it wouldn't have maybe made full stop. So I think that mm. obviously the, the differences that Doug Naylor wanted to put in and the fact that we haven't got that, that studio audience is actually, um, really pertinent to actually having having a Red Dwarf, Red Dwarf 7 in, in in any case. And then basically, Quentin Hoofs and tells Lister to do the distress call and he informs people that they are now on supplies. We then go into the new credits. Have you done your homework, Kurt? Have I, Smeg? Okay, so... Do you know what? I actually did think about it when I watched it this afternoon and I, I was like, must watch the credits. And I forgot. So, <laughs> the new credit trying to take a look at it as if you'd never seen them before, feature a CGI starbug, some kind of weird tug of war, a warship shooting, Crichton's head blowing up, a woman as part of the crew, the cast against metal bars getting soaked, an exploding pagoda, that same woman punching Lister, a mechanical cat, and Crichton walking like a drag queen. Did we know? that Kachansky was going to be in this series. Had she been announced or was it a surprise? Because I genuinely can't remember. I remember it being announced. Oh, okay. So it wasn't a huge surprise that there was a woman as part of the crew then. Yeah, I, I remember being, I think, I think in that, about, I mean, it probably would be worse now, but they were probably scared of the risk of announcing like 
if they didn't announce it, then sort of like the second episode in Rimmer's gone. And then the next one, they bring somebody else in. People may switch off in the meantime. Mm. Um, it is quite, uh, same as we've said before, how they really don't give one when it comes to putting clips in the title sequence. Because there will be some people who are like, who, who's that? Why are they there? Why isn't there that much Rimmer? And then it's not going to get revealed for three episodes, which is good because it gives you, it keeps them watching for the first three episodes at least. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, so I think if you could probably get away with it now, you could probably put a character in it and then kill them off or bring in somebody surprising. I mean, um, Joss Whedon wanted to do it famously with uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, there's a character who dies in the first episode of that. And they wanted, they wanted them to be treated as like one of the main gang, only for them to get absolutely slaughtered in like the first ten minutes. But I think the network said absolutely not. So they yes. are in that episode, and it's a fairly famous actor, Eric Balfour, who has gone on to do a load of other stuff. But he's, I think, he's credited as a guest star instead. But they wanted him like in the title sequence, everything, and then knocked on the head in the first ten minutes. They actually got to do that with Amber Benson later on. They yeah. um, put Amber Benson's character on the credits on the for one time mm. the episode where she was killed, and so he did get to do something similar later on when he had more creative control. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I could maybe do a uh, podcast about this, but the X Files had a, a bit of an issue around see, their see, season seven eight, where David Duchovny was suing Fox, and um, that is Mulder and Scully, who are the two main characters of the show, and Mulder wasn't going to be in. They actually had a bit of a fallout, and there was rumours about him not appearing at all post. You know, this is obviously spoilers. Post season seven, um, they actually got him in for eleven episodes, and they have obviously fought the contract and stuff like that. And he's since like made up and things, but they replaced the main character over the case of a full season with the T one thousand Robert Patrick. There is like these presents, and I, and I was thinking about watching when I was watching series seven here. That was like kind of the same kind of thing that they had to bring. Robert Patrick, in a, in a way, that's like, we're not replacing David Duchovny. Mm. He's a different type of character. Yeah. And the, 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 there is mixed messages about whether or not, like, Chris Barry was doing this because of his British stuff and that he was, apparently, Doug Naylor said he was never going away. He was he was always going to be a case of, we're going to let him go and disappear for a bit, but the intention always was to bring him back in Series 8. Whether or not you believe that is another, is another matter, but if you take it as written, then that was the case. And... Um, Chloe Annette was brought in as um, Pachansky mm. because there was American finances that were looking at doing the Red Dwarf film and they wanted to build a, more of an ensemble cast and wanted a female in the cast. So it was p- kind of a precursor to the film to bring um, Chloe, Chloe in as Kachansky because they wanted a female person in the cast. I mean, it does make sense. Red Dwarf has always been a massive sausage fest. Yeah. Why? Didn't we get Claire Grogan? Was she not available or? I think she wasn't available or she, she just turned it down. One, one of the two. She might have been in EastEnders or something at the time. I think it was made very, she made very clear like in plenty of time she wasn't going to be able to do it. And that's why they had the whole casting thing. I mean, it works quite well in that, you know, this Kachansky is from a different dimension that we find out. So she could look different. What with all the the multiverse things that we've got going on these days, maybe not back in the day, people would be like, it's not Claire, not Mike Chansky, hashtag. If looking back now, it works absolutely fine. Mm. And she's very good. Uh, it takes, uh, she even she admits it takes a while for it to get in the swing of things because there's no audience. 
it's it's almost a shame she doesn't get longer because on eight she does find find her feet of performing in front of of an audience and then she's not really in it after that. No, <laughs> she's a shame. Yeah. Um, I, I think, and, and you're right. Watching actually, strangely enough, I was watching one of the documentaries on, well, not documentary, some of the uh, Robert Llewellyn's like videos this afternoon, and you can see she's having a great time, and her humour's coming out. It just doesn't really show on screen as much. Mm. You know, so there's like elements of like uh, messing around mm. with Robin and, and Craig and stuff like that, and it just doesn't quite show. Now, obviously, we'll talk about um, character traits um, later on, but um, but yeah, I, I think uh, she she definitely finds her feet in, in eight and she's got some great moments and she's not scottish anymore which is probably the most glaring thing in it yeah, <laughs> yeah. she's posh and not scottish yeah well you know um speaking speaking of star trek alice eve was was british and um carol marcus was not in star trek rafa khan so yeah. you know there's there's a basically star trek is again ripped off red dwarf basically of course always yeah, yeah. So there's a log update and there is some terrible news. All the poppadoms, lager, and indeed all the curry has been destroyed. Crichton encourages Lister to mourn the curries. And they, they highlight that curry nights was every day except Monday. And then they go through a menu of curry that sounds really fit. I want curry. It did make me fancy a curry, actually. Although as we're recording this, we are possibly, is it possibly the hottest day of the year? We, yeah, tomorrow is the going to be the hottest day on record. Today yeah. is the hottest day of the year. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So it's like, and it's hotter down where you two are, but up here mm-hmm. it's about 30 degrees. Yeah, it's so. about 30, it was about 37 earlier where I am. And of course, being Red Dwarf fans, the thing we're going, go for a curry. Oh, I love a curry. Yeah. Maybe not today then. Yeah, so behind, so behind the scenes, yeah. you know, we've we've have some interesting images on screen, and I'm recording in a completely different room because there's no way I'm st- sitting in forty degree heat. Yeah, I've got my nips out. Yeah, I haven't got shirt on either. Uh, I've got Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy T-shirt on. Good. I mean, if, if you're going to have to wear clothes, you should wear good clothes. So yeah, well yeah. Well, I wanted to wear Give Keys a Chance, but it, that is a grey T-shirt that would not last. No. <laughs> <laughs> so this scene does have my quotable dwarf of the episode and it is of course howling like a hungry prairie dog however it is misquoted dwarf for me i've only just realized this so he's encouraging lister to mourn and howl like a hungry prairie dog however i watched this like i said when i was at university and there was a term in my university digs for girls that were vocal whilst having sex. And that was a howler. And therefore, I would describe if I could hear my next door student shagging, I would say she howled like a hungry prairie dog. So it's misquoted Red Dwarf. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird this scene because in this episode, as I say, I watched the one without the laugh track for for comparison this i don't know if you had this kurt this scene doesn't work no. with, without a laugh track it's and it happens a lot during this episode is there's a lot of times where they go you know no curry pause for laughter and mm. and it, it i know some of the episodes in this series are longer and it kind of feels in this one it not in the next one the next one's absolutely fine but in this one it really feels like 
it's missing the laugh track or some form of laughter. It's even if they made an edit, which was just a bit tighter together, it would have played a lot better. It yeah. does feel like they're getting used to not having an audience in this mm. episode, actually. Mm, definitely. Particularly this, in the scenes on Red Dwarf. Less so, perhaps, on location. Yeah, I, I think the location bits are the strongest bits mm. in this episode. And the dwarf stuff is the stuff where... And I can imagine it must have been tricky for the actors as well, going from, you know, got an audience there, we can play out a laugh, we can do that. And I think, again, it's something that Chloe and Epp was talking about at, during the fact, during Seven, is you don't know if it's funny. Mm. Because the only person who's probably laughing at it is Doug. And of course, Doug's going to laugh because he wrote <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah. What is your opinion of Series 7 compared to the rest of the series? Because in my head, it wasn't as funny. But I did really enjoy re-watching Series 7. For me, it's, it's enjoyable. But every episode has a bit in it where it feels like they're showing off that they can do something a bit extra. Right. For me, in this one, it's the tunnel. Mm, mm. And they they even admit it in sort of behind the scenes thing. No, no, we've got this tunnel. We're going to use it. And yeah, it's a gorgeous looking tunnel. Yeah, it is. They don't need it. No, and... that, that tunnel was Nor was it Norcroft or yeah. something? Because ironically, we were supposed to record this last week, and we we didn't for, for reasons we won't go into, but. And then switched the telly on, and the hottest place in the country that Monday was Norcroft. Mm. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of it before until Research of Red Dwarf. And then when we, they were went to record us talking about it, it was on screen. It was bizarre. Yeah, it's it, uh, this this series as well. Is it's a transitional series? Mm. I feel in terms of watching this again um, after a good while off from watching it. To be honest. They, it becomes very apparent that obviously they did get the CGI quickly because they had a falling out with the model people because Doug kept changing the script constantly and they just didn't have time to build things. Right. And I think that uh, spoils some bits. Well, the next scene is CG and yeah. I didn't make very copious notes. So just do a smiley face because it's yeah. not as good as the models. Mm. Yeah. So, so my, my take. And I bear in mind, as I say, I've got the Dave and the and the Promised Land stuff to think about as well. He's got this obsession with sci-fi films, Doug, and it seems to be like Blade Runners of the world. I know we'll talk about Back to Earth when we get there, but this and the, and he, he wants to seem to like go towards interests that he, that he's the things that he's interested in. So this episode mm. is obviously JFK. You know, the the film JFK was what night out nineteen two ninety three with Kevin Costner. Yeah, one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got like sort of, um, you know, so, so something like that, that he wants to portray. He wants to like instill that kind of Star Trek and it's not even Star Trek. It's kind of like this emotional, he wants to have this em emotional heart to the, each episode and Red Dwarf has had that and it's had its moments and it's had some real high concept sci-fi moments, but Doug and the people he's brought in to, to write seem to want to go down the route of, you know, having a, an emotional moment with Rimmer. He wants to have the emotional resonance of things in in the show, and you know, and he. But what seems to be strange with him, he seems to like go between 
two ideals with it and it it flips mm. backwards and forwards to like the old school Red Dwarf and, then, and that kind of style. Mm. Because if you look at series eight, even though it's more serialized and has a an eight episode arc in, in some ways, it's got like three, two parts mm. pretty much. There's that story element to it. And I know that some of the film is actually included in, in that, some of the ideas for the film. But then you go to Red Dwarf 10 and it kind of gets back to like old school Red Dwarf. And mm. then, they, but then the 12 episode, the seasons 12 or the Promised Land go back to this idea of like, the heart of, of something. Mm. And some of it is amazing. Some of it is absolutely incredible. I love a lot of what he does, but it's hit and miss. Mm. And that's the problem. Red Dwarf had a formula one to six, seven, as you say, is trying to find that formula and it can hit really well, but it can also miss as well. And there's some of things like back to earth is a big miss. So it's, it's stuff like that where I really appreciate the the challenge and the, you know, the, the concepts that he's trying to portray and some of the stories he's trying to do. But there is this in this is thing, it's like it's caught between like two or three worlds and it's uh, it's difficult. Having said that, Series 7 for me, I actually, I've come to appreciate more and more each watch that I've done. Yeah. But there is some moments, and, and I will talk about them during the actual series itself, that I actually do groan and ache about. And, I, and it's the first time, you know, we talk about episodes that we've had in the past where we don't feel is the... Yeah, body swap, for example, we're not. We don't think that's the best episode ever, but I didn't groan at it. And there's mm. a moment in this series where I actually go, oh, "Right, it's not. That's not good." Mm. And that starts to instill in some of the some of the episodes, and there is that that weakness in 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 the series moving forward. I think for me, the biggest deal was the laughing track, mm. and a lot of the fun of Red Dwarf is like you were saying, the pause for the studio audience, but also laughing along with these imaginary people on the laughing track. And I think... Well, it's not imaginary people. It's not imaginary people because they have... No, you know what I mean though. I don't know these people. Yeah. So they're basically, they're basically what they did for the laughing track is they recorded it in like the October. So it was like filmed back to back six episodes. And then, then they actually got an audience in and they watched it. And they recorded right. the track. Well, the, the, the complete lack of it meant that I think psychologically it made me think it was less funny than it is. It isn't as good as series six or series five, but it isn't shit. And I think the lack of people, in inverted commas, to laugh along with when I watched it almost made me self-conscious in a weird way. Because, you know, I was, I was a teenager. I'd just gone to university. I was about as self-conscious as a human being is likely to ever be. And um, it just seemed less funny than it had been before. But I think that that was an unfair take on it, affected by the laughing track or, well, lack thereof. It definitely works better with the laughing track. Yeah. No, mm. no. And I know there's like, you know, as I say, there's... Um, with the laughter track, you are getting the reactions to people, um, mm. which is great because you do hear some right through the series. There's, there's some some episodes where you'll hear somebody laughing, and it's quite a unique laugh. Mm. So you, you know, <laughs> it's, it is it is quite a, like a nice thing to see. But again, if you look at like Matt will be listening to this and he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Is there's a particular moment in one of the new Red Dwarfs where you can totally tell Danny Don Jules is, is holding. It's like that moment with the boxer shorts with Lister mm. where yes. they're just holding because you know that he's just reacting to the laughter because he's kind of going, mm. is it going to calm down yet? And there's there's no there's no that. And it goes to Carl's point about the editing of it mm. um, where, yeah. you know, have they could they tighten it up? Have they tightened it up in some ways? Because it does seem that 
you know, the laughter tracks does seem to fit in perfectly with what the what they've got. So yeah, then there's the like we say, there's the CGI Starbug scene, which I had built myself up to utterly, utterly loathe. It is below average for the time, but it isn't completely rotten like my over-exaggerated memory seems to think it would be. What's your opinion on the CG? Is it really as bad as we kind of suggested it would be? Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's really bad. Um, and I appreciate that basically it was in the early days mm. and they kind of grabbed, I think his name was Chris Veal, who was doing something elsewhere and they went, oh, can you put a spaceship in it? And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure, I guess so. So I don't particularly blame the CGI artists for it because they were probably up against it. It's, I mean, you'll see this, and we'll see this a lot in Stoke May Clipper as well. I think it's because they kept changing things. Mm. And one of the things, because I did watch the extended, is the scene at the beginning with the ship, and it empties out the toilet, basically, on a planet. And that looked so bad. And a terrible way to come back. Like after five years off, and it's like, oh, here's a poo joke. It's not even got any dialogue on it. I thought the ship looked good in the title sequence, where it does the big spin round sort of close yeah. to the camera. But it bewildered me how they couldn't find some way of upgrading the footage of the models. Um, because they only really needed Starbuck. They must have, I know they think they said the models have been destroyed, but they got film footage. They got film footage, and this was. And There's an explosion in Star Trek, and I'm going back to Star Trek again, where a Klingon bird of prey gets exploded, and it's used in about six films. Yeah. Brilliant. So, uh, so why why not just use that explode, use the Starbuck that they can do? I will say that the, I know we're not talking about the extended. And we somehow half ended up talking about the extended. Yeah, but sorry. The, the Starbug at the end of the, the the extended the extended clip, which you won't talk about, just the actual Starbug looks quite good. Mm. And I thought mm. the actual joke and the way Starbug splits up, the actual Starbug looks all right. But I've just got a real issue, and and it's just me personally. I've heard Babylon Five is one of the best sci-fi shows of all time. I cannot get with the CGI, and I could not deal with watching it. I couldn't do it, and that's why on. I just love the Enterprise D model. I love Starbuck. I love Red Dwarf. I love those models. And mm. it just has something extra. Yes, there's, you know, there's like Orville at the moment, which you can still tell is CGI, yeah. but it's come a hell of a long way. But something like the late 90s when you're putting these mod putting that on. And I think the biggest thing for me is that it's a step backwards. It's not yeah. like it's the beginning of Red Dwarf. It's like we've seen better. Yeah, it's different. Yeah. I remember feeling at the time, because I'm sure this was when the, the re-releases happened, oh, he's lucas it. <laughs> yeah. Ha! Were the remasters not 99, or was it Was it around this time? It was. I think it was around this time for the original ones anyway. Because I, I, I do remember feeling that it's like, oh, he's... It's always the way we could dredge. It's like, oh, they'll, they'll embrace the new thing straight away, not realising it's going to take a good few years before it's actually going to be worth using yeah don't, don't buy a new like games console on day of release because there'll be an update yeah. six months later or it'll bomb. really matters yeah. Yeah. yeah it's it's like people will say oh the new 
can't remember which one it was. It was either the Xbox One X or the PS5. They were like, oh, this is great. It's like, not if it dies on its ass within the first three months because no one can buy one. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, there's been plenty of that. I mean, look at Laserdiscs and HD DVD when they came out and yeah, I had them. It, yeah. yeah. And just that kind of thing. And I really feel that looking at some of the backstage sort of interviews and the documentaries and stuff, you've got, there still seems to be a slight element of bitterness between uh, the mill and Doug Naylor. And Doug Naylor seems to come across with this very almost petulant kind of, well, they weren't ready, so we had to do this. And it's like, yeah, but they weren't ready because you kept changing stuff. Sure. And it's almost like what could have been. So if if Doug Naylor hadn't changed stuff, what what would have we had? Because we'd had... So I get the feeling there are model shots in this, isn't there? And then they get mixed in with CG. But the model shots they shot all, were all of a sudden completely unusable because Doug Naylor, Doug Naylor changed it around. Mm. And mm. yeah, it's it's just, but you'd think for just the we're flying through space bit, you could have used a model shot and, you know, reversed it or, you know, played it backwards. Flip, or, yeah, flipped yeah. it or something. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Flip the film. We will actually talk about Tika to Ride properly at some point rather than an overview of the series. Shall we? Uh, <laughs> the, um, yeah. It's the beginning. It's the beginning. It's the opening, opening episode. You've got to yeah. do these things. True. So we do have a new, bigger cockpit. And Crichton explains the anomaly has expanded the Starbug and suggests that they check that the cargo bay is is stable. And that is a lovely little explanation of why they've got a much better set. You did feel like they're about to turn to camera and do the wink, big thumbs up. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's it was just that thing. You know, it's again, it's one of the things the fans are they're fine. You know, we go, oh, this it's 200% 200% bigger because of the anomalies. Like, that's how we're going to explain the set. Wicked. In the same way, Series 3, it's like, oh, we moved to the officers' quarters. That's why the set looks nicer. Yeah. Like, yeah, fair enough. It makes sense. It doesn't need to make deep, deep, brutal sense, as long as it makes some sense. And it looks really cool. And it looks really it cool. It does. Yeah. It is gorgeous. The set, new set is really, really cool. It's Yeah. It does feel like it. it is kind of shouting out to the um, finances or producers, the American producers saying, this is what we can do on a budget. Yeah. Imagine mm. what we can do with a film. So next up is the cargo bay that you talked about briefly with that beautiful giant fan in the background. And um, Kat suggests getting the time drive again. Lister wants to use it to get curries and the other two refuse. But that, oh, I know you've said it already, but that fan, it's so cool. So good. They never came back to it. <laughs> what i love in the commentary on that though is that um lister Lister, or craig charles is the only one that realizes it's been flooded because the direction was you're in you know your your cargo bay has been flooded yeah and you've got them all kind of like walking on the spot with the the smoke and you can see the lights coming through the, the, the the floor and everyone's just going saying no no we was it was it was that what it was and craig charles going yeah we got told i never got told um, and you can just see it, and it becomes so obvious when you actually watch it again. It's like actually they are just walking on the spot until they're ready to move to the next yeah. bit. But it's a mm. it's, it's a lovely little scene, and isn't it as well that it's a curved curved floor? So they're trying desperately to look like they're all walking on a straight platform as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's I mean it's a beautiful shot. I mean I can see why Ed Bice saw it and just salivated because I can't think of any director that wouldn't look at it. I kind of wish they'd found something else to do with it than just walking down it. 
Yeah. I suppose you can't really. So during this scene as well, Crichton points out that he needs to clear his cash files and has to have 12 hours downtime. And Lister checks where his RAM is. Hmm. Right. Okay. (laughs) I've been having quite an, an internal debate on this because it's mentioned right through this series. Ram is mentioned about three or four times in this series. Mm-hmm. And so, so basically, right, so they're saying about the, the Ram chip um, that it's got, you know, what do you need more memory for? Because effectively, if, if you're going to wake up in the morning, right, you, you Ram and you, you're a Crichton, your Ram is empty. You know, you, you stay up right, and you want to make breakfast. You call up that thing to do it. So you go, right, I need to make an omelette. How do I make an omelette? Goes into the Ram. And then the following day, when you go to sleep and you wake up again, the RAM is cleared and you have to call it again. So you would do that right through. So your cache would be cleared on a nightly basis. But then it's like, is the RAM like 700 gigabytes or something? It's just like, it just keeps it all in there and has to store it. Or is it a solid state drive? I know I'm going way into it too much, but RAM is designed to like sort of process the processes that you're doing, not store the information. And it would get, it would get cleared out whenever he rebooted full stop. But then there's the argument to say on the other side of it, that's what he's doing. So he should have said hard drive then. Is that what you're saying? It's mm. all for the more ram field of sheep, isn't it? It's for the joke. Mm. Yeah. Also, why would you want to get rid of the Bay City Roller's greatest hits? And when did he use that? Knows. Was it God only? There knows. should be in the world of spin-offs, the Nova Five spin-off with Crichton and the three ladies, and just every episode ends with him singing some kind of lounge version of an 80s thing, you know, just maybe not Robert Llewellyn, but some get somebody in and just every episode he ends with like, bye-bye, baby. Like the fast show used to do with somebody singing, please release. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill it's me <laughs> so in the middle of the night lister wakes up and detaches Crichton's head because he was confirmed that that's where the ram is and he replaces it with a spare head who agrees to help him lister disables Sparehead's guilt chip and behavior protocols just call me badass. I I love the lifting the flap of the head and it having the little stand to put it on. That was that was just a it's a little, I love Visual the little gag. things and that to me yeah that was just really really good fun. Um, it does begin although one of my least favorite this this to me is the series where Crichton kind of goes off the rails a bit for me performance wise. Um, I really, really dislike it when he gets into the you're lying, screechy voice kind mm. of thing later in the series. I I just don't like it. I think it's I think it's really you, me, you're gonna have a fight in the car park. <laughs> Probably, yeah. But I I really I'm not a big fan of that at all. I absolutely adore neurotic Crichton. I think it's incredible. I think it I'm absolutely with, love it. Uh, I love neurotic Crichton too. I, I don't know what it is. I think I think maybe it's just that your lying scene just cut through me like nails on a chalkboard, and it kind of spoiled it. It it does bring up an interesting point though, because part of what 
I think Naylor was saying was that you've got Crichton, who's just the exposition machine, and he does it in this episode. But they wanted to get away from him just being that. They needed a character trait or they needed something mm. for him to do that isn't exposition only, that had he had his own character mm. like traits as such. Mm. And then the neurotic Crichton with the the Kachansky. And I can't, and even though I love it so much, I can't get around the fact that it makes, eventually it makes um, Kachansky and Crichton such a great couple to be seen together as, as, a, as a duo. Mm. Mm. So it kind of does help with that. Um, but I can see why some people don't like it. I can totally see that. It is it is a it is a Marmite kind of character thing. I'm not a fan of this initial scene of him without his behavior protocols. And I don't know whether it's because, again, I watched the one without the laugh track, but it's just not funny. <laughs> it's he, he swings the, uh, the groinal socket about, and with no laugh track, it's just kind of, ugh. You know what I mean? It's just, oh, it's yeah, it's really odd. Mm. I I found that funny actually, because he uses a groinal whisk to stir tea, which is completely inappropriate. I I laughed at that. Pork away. I thought that bit was <laughs> yeah, that that bit was fine, but just things like you bet you're at. I think that's just from coming through college and watching a lot of student films where British people are trying to speak American. Like, I think you, the, I think there was a couple where the, they used the word dumbass, which didn't sound quite right coming out of middle-class, uh, middle-class kids' yeah. voices. Just like, it's like, drive, dumbass. And it's like, that just sounded so bad. And, it, and I think that kind of bugged me a bit about this performance. I thought there was other things Robert Llewellyn could have done. You see, the smoking and stuff like that was really, for me, I, I think the dumbass thing, uh, the bet your ass thing does fall flat for me out of the entire scene. Yeah. I think all the rest are fine, but I do think the dumbass thing is probably the worst out of the lot of it. Mm. Yeah. Also, because it kind of plays into the sort of how dumb a rimmer and the cat. Yeah. <laughs> to not realize something's going on. Um, but I suppose, you know, they're both caught up in their own worlds that much. They may not pay that much attention to it, but this this just seems a bit too weird for them to not go. What's going on? Yeah, and I think it's played for laughs and he smokes a cig and then um, Lisa does give him a bollocking for being too obvious. I get what they were getting at, but yes, it does make, I mean, maybe not the cat, but it makes Rimmer look particularly stupid because he's always been so um, mean to Crichton, basically. He's always Mm. been using him for his original purpose rather than what Crichton became with more kind of human emotion and stuff. He's always just used him Mm. as a service droid rather than what Crichton became. And I think he would spot that Crichton is behaving Mm. like John Wayne or whatever, but I still found it funny. So they return to the time drive and Lister asks to be taken to an Indian restaurant. Crichton programs it after letting it slip that he's never used it before. (laughs) This is my biggest problem with the entire episode. Yes, it's an exceptional episode. Yes, there's some incredible work recreating historic scenes later on. Yes, it's really, really outstanding when it comes to level of intelligence and cleverness and it's it's a funny episode but it absolutely shits on what they established and your favorite joke Kurt, from the last 
episode that was aired. It's not a time and space drive. It's a time drive. How do they get to America? And it was a huge plot point of out of time. And there is no way around it. I don't feel like... uh, It just... I can't get over it. It makes me cross. It's weird because they don't explain it really in any form. No. In, you know, in like in time slides, it's like, oh, you know, the fluid must have mutated. Not even anything really throwaway like no. that. I'm actually looking at my keyboard now because Lister asks to be taken to the restaurant down the back of the JMC building. And I'm looking to just see if JFK is like one key out on JMC and it's not, which I thought could be the explanation, um, but it isn't. That would have been too Which clever. Probably, yeah, but it's yeah, it's an interesting one because they don't really explain it, but it's in, it's just a kind of we want to go there, so we're going to go there kind of thing in the writing. Yeah. It's you know who cares, and it kind of plays in a little bit in that we don't know how they got there. They haven't got a clue either, so maybe they were wrong about the drive in the first place. Yeah, um, because also in Out of Time, when you meet the the opulent crew they must have been able to do it because they've had dinner with the hitlers they acquired a separate drive if i remember rightly oh. okay yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's not, not that drive they kind of lost it they wanted to repair the time drive because they were the other drivers working but this that one wasn't there yeah that, that i agree with mark on that mm, but yeah i right, mean okay it's, it's that suspension of of belief to get the as you say to get that episode and and it is a really standing omission because I was thinking on the back of this episode, and obviously a lot of the times you just let it fly, don't you? Because you know it's there and you just kind of like go whatever. But yeah. when you think about it in general terms, why didn't they just turn the ship around and send it back 3 million years and spend 6 million years and then Lister will be back on Earth and have him yeah. in stasis? Yeah. yeah. it It's, I get it. I, they wanted to do a JFK episode and it's exceptional. It's it's a fa- it's actually a favorite episode of mine. Despite this, it's not even. A, I don't think it's a mistake. I think they just didn't care because they wanted to get to the JFK. They, they they do try. They do try. To be fair to them, they do try to like instill almost like a, a time prime directive in what what Star Trek does. And I know Star Trek mm. goes back in time a lot, and they have that they, they have the the temporal directive of like you can't interfere and things like that and. The smallest thing can be have the cause and effect, which you know Crichton does does say, and obviously the behavioral science kind of thing knocks knocks that on the head. So there is that element of like when you come out of the episode and finish it, it's kind of well, we're not going to do that again because we could have such a bad influence on the the history of the world kind of thing. And obviously, thinking about backwards is a different kind of dimension and and all that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. they you know, they do have moments, and it will be interesting to see when they do go back to Earth in various modes in the future about whether or not that mm-hmm. kind of instills that kind of quality, which I'm sure they won't um, because of the way that it's, it's deep being designed. So yeah, you've got to suspend your disbelief, but unfortunately it's, um, you know, it's difficult to do that, especially given that the episodes are back to back. That's, that's the biggest issue. I think, yeah. I think of all the bloopers and continuity errors, we, we obviously we spot them, we highlight them, we joke about them, but this is the one that really grates the most with me. That's all. Also, this ties into the thing I mentioned in previous series of, so Lister's back on Earth. 
sod trying to get back. We're here. Yeah. Who cares if it's in the 60s? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I could go and invent stuff something. I could go you know, not even sheets. something like scientific. Yeah, I could go invent the tension sheet. I could go invent, you know, the lottery, you know, anything like that. Who cares? Like, oh, the time drive's broken. whoop You know, it doesn't matter. Mm. I'm back on Earth. Let's go to Liverpool. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, yeah but I don't know. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's an interesting. Maybe it's got to the point now where the crew are so tight they they want to stay together. You're pushing it, but uh, yeah, probably. So next scene is Lee Harvey Oswald setting up to shoot John F. Kennedy. He misses twice, and the boys teleport in, knocking him out of the window. They work out where they are after looking at the dates and the boxes marked Texas Book Depository, and after a comedy of errors, they kill Lee Harvey Oswald, who becomes a giant pizza. Police burst through and list, and they think that they did it. Clayton escapes using the time drive. It's it's a great scene. I've, after everything I've just said, it's just a wonderful, wonderful scene with lots of fun visual gags and stuff. So the actual remake of the JFK thing, they were originally going to do it in black and white, um, but they thought, oh, that would have been cool. Yeah, I mean, X Files did it with their version when they did Musings of the Cigarette Smoking Man, um, where it was Smoking Man who killed JFK. Um, and obviously, seeing JFK in the actual film itself, JFK, and that, and then there's other things that, that have replayed it. I think Quantum Leap did one, which was really interesting. If memory serves me right, it was one of the rare moments where they changed history, but originally the twist was that. It was Jackie who died, not John F. Kennedy. So but I think that was in oh. our existing timeline. So actually Sam Beckett changed that timeline, if I remember rightly. Matt probably scream at me going, no, that's not right. That did not. <laughs> yeah, but, anyway, um, but I thought the way it was filmed right through this this whole thing, um, you know, it's just brilliantly directed. It's it's almost like they've copy and pasted what they've seen before but they've done it on such a shoestring budget and they've managed to get what they've done is absolutely amazing from that perspective. Mm. Um, obviously, when they, when they jump in and they take out the the guy who's a, a mime artist, I'm not fond on those jokes. I wasn't fond on the slapstick nature of that, those jokes that where he was like being swung in and out, but I do adore. Oh, I enjoyed those. No, I'm not, not, my, not a fan, but I do adore that double take. It's one of my favourites. Um, oh, yeah. It's one of my favourite. Red Dwarf moments of all time. That double take is just hilarious. It's wonderful. It is. That double take really doesn't work without the laugh track. <laughs> I don't keep going back to it. But it, it I don't know what it is, but it's it's so slow without the laugh track. It's very much a Crichton looks at it. Then he looks back. Then he kind of rears back. Then he looks at it. And with that laugh track, it's so hokey. But with the laugh track, it's brilliant. It's so... And the the acme way that the boxes are yeah. labelled and tech, tech, Texas Book Depository. And it's... The thing is as well, it's... They've, uh, I know they talk about how they, they re, try to redo the footage as close as they can. Um, but I think that the set looks good mm. for the book depository. And the guy they got to play Lee Harvey Oswald yeah. looks good. Looks, looks yeah. like, you know, you go... So, yeah, that's Lee Harvey Oswald. Yeah, it's a good. It shows again that there's the extra budget there because you wouldn't have got the the outside the window set, which was a big set, mm. and you know you wouldn't have got that in previous series. I don't think. 
And yeah, it is a bit slapsticky. There was a bit just watching it back today where I was like, they'd have seen, they'd have seen him coming back through the window before they got pulled out. Yeah, it works. There's, there is a there is a time and place for slapstick, and it, the Red Dwarf don't do it often, but they did do it fairly well. It was a good explanation as to how it happened with him trying to tie up a tie a cable around him so he doesn't fall. I do like the fact that the police they disappear and then the police just shoot anyway. Yeah, I didn't like that. Did you know? That was a dig, I think, at the American culture. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't like it purely because of the stuff that we've talked about before with bazookoids. Because those guns don't do anything. Yeah. Those are guns, <laughs> and they don't do anything. No. no, they don't damage the boxes, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you're but right. I say, it's a, slapstick, it's a slapstick episode, well, a moment, isn't it, really? So I, I love slapstick, so this scene worked completely for me. And the, the minor, I, but I do still use the term fat bastard rear. Sometimes if I'm hungry and I want food, I'm like, I need to find a fat bastard rear. And it's obviously the cat joke as well, which is hilarious as well. Hands on heads. I didn't find that funny. I thought that was crude and a bit dull. Yeah. That was my least favourite point of the uh, of that scene, actually. This is interesting how like the divergence hasn't really happened that much in the previous series, but yet already mm. in this episode, there's like divergence between the three of us. That'll be interesting to see if that continues. Yeah. So they land in the same place three years later and the entire city is deserted. They come across a dead body that's been trampled to death. Crichton uses a newspaper to update his knowledge of what's happened. And JFK was impeached for sharing a mistress with a mafia boss, and he's been jailed. J. Edgar Hoover became president as a puppet for the mob, who were blackmailing him. The USSR and the States had a nuke deal with the mob and installed missiles in Cuba. And basically that meant that everyone evacuated the major cities. This is actually quite kind of high sci-fi in as much as one thing completely changes a world. And sure, this is obvious now, but I don't think it was in 1997. I think this was quite innovative about kind of changing history. Mm. Quantum Leap, like you say, played with the concepts and obviously Doctor Who always did. But I don't know. It doesn't feel like a cliche to me. I I think because in this instance, the character that's done it is, for lack of a better term, one of us. Right. Whereas if it's in Doctor Who, it's this otherworldly, literally otherworldly doctor. Now in Star Trek, they're, they're I was going to say Space Corps, but that's in Red Dwarf. They're the Federation. Right. Whereas in this, it's just some bum from Liverpool and he's inadvertently brought down society you know we could do it if if we were in a similar situation just through basic human greed and hunger it has the back to the future moment doesn't it where starbuck doesn't exist yeah yeah you know i always think think about the 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 photograph in that kind of sense that you know let's go back to starbuck where it doesn't exist anymore because you've irrevocably changed history and as you say the doctor who element of like you know i know it was a bit later on and forgive me because i don't i don't i haven't seen the classic ones but that fixed point in time where there's certain moments where you, you know that are fixed points in time or you know that if you do change then that can send the world in a completely different way the the mine and high castle yeah. is a perfect example of that you know stuff like that where which is much later on but having like a a, a point like that which is i think it the, the human consciousness just knows that that's one of those moments like the september 11th and you know that and jfk's mm. assassination the mind of the king getting shot 
all those moments are just so pivotal to the the way the world is that just imagining mm. the change in that is is um is open game mm. for for a sci-fi writer to, to actually work on that. The other thing in this scene that I actually wanted to whine about is I was actually quite irritated that they jobbed the cat's sense of smell. That had been his thing through all of series six, and they just completely kind of pissed all over his sense of smell. And the joke wasn't funny enough to justify it, in my opinion. No, it, I mean, it was funny in terms of like, he's stating the obvious, but yeah, it's cheap gag. It was a very cheap gag. I can see this is the only, I think this is one of the only episodes where it's dug on his own. Think not sure. Or so potentially, because Paul Alexander doesn't need does a lot of them. Yeah, Paul Alexander comes in from from the next one, I believe. Who's written? I, I looked into Paul Alexander a bit more, and he's written with Doug before on things like canned carrots. So he knows how to like put gags in and make things snappy and punch stuff up. And I think that's why we see. I, I this isn't the weakest episode of the series, I don't think, but I do think we see a bit of an upturn after this episode in terms of the actual writing where this one kind of leans a bit much into the comedy drama, mm. but it doesn't really find its tone. So yeah, like you say, Starbuck doesn't exist in this timeline because the USSR won the space race and it was all caused by JFK's womanizing. Lister despairs and Crichton has not only no compassion, he finds it quite funny. And it's at this point that mm. Rimmer and the cat discover that it's Sparehead 2 and not actually Crichton. Um, and then the time drive is frozen and Crichton goes to find food. There's also the bit where they're, sort of, they're going on about, you know, you've brought about the end of civilization and this, that, and the other. And Lissa says, yeah, man, I've still not had a curry, which I think is supposed to be like, oh, ha, 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 Lister loves curry. But I remember just saying, yeah. dick. Just like, doesn't care. It does kind of feel like the earlier series where Rimmer and Lister were both actually actively unpleasant people a lot of times and they weren't mm. really like that in five and six no and and it's weird because it kind of feels a bit like the curry thing has always been a thing like from the very beginning i don't remember it being leaned on this much until this series if you know what i mean where it's you know i i, I can i know at the beginning it's played off like this major traumatic event for lister that he's he's not had a he can't have a curry anymore. It almost feels like the like they dialed it up to eleven. Mm. Like like you said with the financiers yeah. watching or whatever. Right, Lister's all about curry cats, the snappy dress, the Crichtons, this neurotic droid, Rimmer's a git. You know, it's just like we've taken the the main aspect and dialed it up, right? So we can show that we can do these big broad. Uh, broad strokes if needs be. And it, I think it is to the detriment a little bit. So they're at a campfire, they're eating chicken, and Crichton reveals that it's a person. Well, it's not chicken, sir. I just, <laughs> that's, that's not chicken, sir. Well, it's that man. That's that man we found. Honest, I just, again, how, as soon as it, it's, it's this, like the moment, I know we talked about it last, last series. Um, with the, you know, well, we're just in 14th century in that space. It's one of those moments where it's like, well, yeah, and you, but it makes sense. And I think that's part of the reason of it. It's like, of course he's going to do that. You know, mm. and, and even like, yeah. you know, I haven't, didn't really appreciate it until after, until recently, really. 
um, and I think it is because I listened to some, I actually watched the, the laughter track and non-laughter tracks over the last few weeks, is um, Creighton's discussion about the fact that, well, I didn't get any parameters. I, I tried my best. And he, he actually does say he did try his best. Mm. And I just like mm. that, that, that that's a, a concept that maybe got a little bit missed. And, you know, I definitely missed me by, because I'm too busy laughing at, you know, the fact that Cat's eating a human being. But um, the fact that, you know, Crichton is trying to say, I didn't get any parameters. I didn't get this. I, I did try it. I just makes sense. It makes sense that, you know, you would eat your own kind. You know, I, I just, I really thought that was not too great to touch. I, I like the fact, I think Chris Barry's performance is my, that the, the revelation that it's that man we found is a very good joke, but just Chris Barry's gl- uh, growing uh, about it all, just the smugness of it. And it, it's, it's a very natural reaction for him to have in that this has genuinely cheered him up. It's not out of being nasty. This has actually made him feel better about the situation they're in. Again, it's very series one and two where he it thoroughly yeah. enjoys Lister's misfortune. Yeah. It's also, it made me laugh that it's proper um, Beano dandy sized chicken legs, <laughs> yeah. like huge thing with a bone sticking out. Because watch, watching it back again, where Cat's got this huge thing. And he's going like chicken's good. It's like, what massive bastard chickens do you know <laughs> that have seen clucking around? Because they're massive. And yeah, it's also the where were they? Did the Nazi cry to preparing any of this? <laughs> it's yeah, nuclear it's, fallout chicken. Yeah, it's oh, it's oh poor Eric. Poor yeah. Eric. So the time drive bleeps and it's back in action. They agree to go back and stop themselves in the first place. They direct Lee Harvey Oswald to a different floor and hide from themselves. Lee Harvey Oswald misses because he's too high up. And they decide to find a second gunman at the grassy knoll. And Lister says he knows who he thinks can help and he teleports them. Not really pertinent to this episode, but just because of my general love for the the Kevin Costner JFK film and this episode, and I was watching this episode, um, you know, well before we were due to record it, because I like to do that sometimes, just start from a series and mm. continue right through to the end again, and then you know, go around in circles. But go uh, back to make your notes, yeah, yeah. I do. yeah. So mm. and sometimes it's like, well, actually, I just want to put something on. It's like nice to watch, and I thought, well, actually, I'll start from series seven, but. <laughs> There was a there was a there was a day there was a day when Wordle had null and everyone in Britain was having a major problem with it and I was like yeah I got that in two and it was like literally because I just watched <laughs> I just watched this episode I was like well that's the grassy null that's what that is perfect so I've thrown my dummy out the pram with Wordle I said if I ever failed I wouldn't do it again and I did ninety consecutive days. And it was the word sever that fucked me over. And I stuck to my word, fuck Wordle. I remember you, you mentioning this on Twitter, actually. I yeah, was livid. That you'd, you'd got to a certain point and you'd had enough now because you didn't get it. Was it was the first time I'd failed. Yeah, I've never really played I've never played it. I've looked it up, but I've never bothered having a go. I, pl- I do play a lot of Word games, but I, I never got into Wordle, which is quite odd. You realise this dates it, doesn't it? And no one will be into Wordle by like... August, <laughs> yeah. September, whenever this airs. But mm. anyway, fuck Wordle, it sucks. With its shit American bollocks. Was it American the, though? Wasn't it thing... someone from Britain that designed it? Yes, but then the Americans took over and um, made it their spelling. 
Yeah, they sold it to the New York Times. Just going back to the the grassy knoll thing. I, one thing I loved is the reaction of the audience when Crichton points out the grassy knoll, just this growing, oh, like they, it's that dawning realization. And this made me go, made me think, did it happen like in real life? Did it happen the way it happened because they kept ballsing it up? You know, did, did the grassy knoll shooter happen because of the Red Dwarf crew? Or would it have happened even if they weren't there? What's the truth? Did they cause it in the first place? There's a bit of a chicken and egg going on. Yeah. If you if you think if you actually literally go line by line, it doesn't really make sense. But then it's the whole once you start talking about temporal mechanics, you can get yourself tied up in a knot because he comes in <laughs> and they're saying, but they were in the fourth floor before they actually they came in. But then that's forced like them up to the sixth level, but he got his third shot off. They mentioned mm. about his third shot off. It's like, well, he wouldn't have had that third shot because he still would have been knocked out. Mm. Yeah, so there's, there's loads, mm. there's little bits like that. And I might be getting that wrong as well, personally. Well, that might be on the same I, I remember, I've probably mentioned this on a previous episode, me and two friends sat down once to write a short film and we decided it was going to be like a time travel paradox thing. We didn't get past, I think we were in the room together drinking tea and eating biscuits for about three and a bit hours. We didn't get two minutes in because we got so hung up on what was, you know, if we go and do this, what will happen here and this, that, and the other, that one of us went to the loo, came back, and then having had a chance to step back, saw the other two of us bickering like children about this time travel dilemma, and just went, we we, we have to stop. <laughs> and, and the film never got made. <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> so it was just, just, just utter bickering for three hours about time travel and about if we did this and this wouldn't work. It, it yeah. wasn't even meant to be a serious film. It was a very silly film, uh, but we wanted the scientists to be right. <laughs> so I love wibbly wobbly, timey wimey yeah. stuff, and I always have. But I would never want to write yeah. it. Never. I'm all. I mean, credit to Doug Nell for giving it a go, and, and like the guys who write for Doctor Who. And things like that. Mm. And uh, this is like that show called Time. I mean, the guys who wrote for Quantum Leap, the guy who also wrote for Quantum Leap, must have tied themselves in knots. Just going, you know, especially when they were bringing in like real people. Like, I remember one where he was in, he jumped into the body of Dr. Ruth and, you know, stuff like uh, that. Yeah. Yeah. Wait. And, and the three part was on JFK where he was Lee Harvey Oswald, then he was somebody else, then he was somebody else. Yeah. As well. Yeah. That's right. He did also jump into a chimpanzee. Or was it Lee Harvey Oswald in three different time zones? It might have been something like that. But yeah. I, I remember it's a chimpanzee. Lee Harvey Oswald isn't a chimpanzee. Oh, wait, sorry. That, that was just my favourite episode, the one with the chimpanzee. I, you know, the, the chimpanzee did a fucking spin kick. <laughs> yes. I just remember the Dr. Ruth one because it, this was when they started showing people sitting in the lounge waiting to go back after Sam had leapt out of their bodies. And they had Dr. Ruth do like some punny line, like, ah, oh, well, the doctor, the doctor will see you now. And she vanishes. And then the next person appears and they zoom in and he smiles and it's a vampire. And so yes. the next episode is, is Sam trying to work out if he's an actual vampire or not. Yeah. Quantum Leap was dead good, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a reboot coming. Yeah. It, it's quite weird because I've been watching some early uh, WWF Raw from like 93 and they plug Quantum Leap, and it's so weird because in my brain, I've always had it down as Quantum Leap was in the 80s, 
which it was, mm. but the last few series were in the early 90s. So to hear like Vince McMahon going, that's right, and coming up after tonight, it's Quantum Leap here only on the USA network. is like, I'm still on the air. <laughs> so the boys teleport to Idlewild Airport in 1965, and JFK is being escorted from a plane to a prison van. Lister then does a short hop to port into that van. JFK hears what happens and contemplates his success before his downfall. He regrets what he did with the womanizing, and Lister suggests that he assassinates himself from the grassy knoll and that he's a liberal icon in his reality. Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And that I, I think using JFK's classic lines in a completely different context like this was actually very, very very clever. This is what I mean by the poignant moments of Red Dwarf, that it's kind of like, this has to be fixed because there's, there's, a, there's an emotional resonance for it and it has a lot to do with the, the world and the history of the world and, and Earth and things like that. And it has that moment of like, you know, we've, they've broken time and, you know, the musical cues that they do mm. and things like that. And, I, and, that, and that's the kind of thing I can feel that Doug really wants to nail down. He wants to do those type of things in various different forms, whether it's personal or, you know, world building or actually something that will absolutely change the universe. And moments like that by, as I say, using that in a in a nostalgic way, you know, it's using that in a nostalgic way, but also kind of maintaining that, you know, yes, he wasn't the, that he was the womanizer and he, he did this, he did this, um, you know, and he said, I can make, I can still make a, mm-hmm a change, change to, you know, the things I can still have a contribution, but you're not going to have the contribution you would have had if you were in that moment of time. And this, this wouldn't have happened. Um, Star Trek, yeah. eventually, strangely enough, um, this, this season, um, spoiler alert for strange words for anyone's listening, watching that they actually have the kind of same sort of thing. They actually put, um, an episode of the original series in at the end of the end of the strange new worlds episode. And Kirk dealt with that. But Pike deals with it and he deals with it completely different. He's the wrong man for the wrong time. And it's those elements that the, the sci-fi tropes of like, yeah, Christopher Pike in Star Trek is I'm an amazing captain, mm. but put him in front of this episode where Kirk is the right person for the right job. He's not capable of doing that. And I like those elements that Doug's really kind of pushing on there. That's it. I've not watched any Strange New Worlds, but that's the conversation for another time. I think it's now time to talk about just how incredible the soundtrack to this episode was it just felt that they hit it bang on with the thematic american timeline music and it adds to all the emotional moments particularly the sad moment that's coming up but yeah the soundtrack is just exceptional in this episode and this and the next one when we talk about the next one there's you know howard goodall's just they've said to him, we want this and he's gone and just knocked it out of the park um yeah the performance of the actors yeah, less, so, less so when we get less so when we get to abel but that's another story yeah uh, the performance of the actor was it michael j shannon who, who plays jfk hit pretty spot on yeah the voice is spot on the the line about the conspiracy theorists will never figure it out i thought was really really good like like kurt says the bit where he's still hanging on a bit in that you know, Jackie's left me, but I can get back out there. I can, I can still do it. And you know, it's that thing of, no, your your time's done. This is what needs to happen. So, and he accepts it. 
it's like you're right. You know, you, you're right. I'll, the fact he, he he doesn't he doesn't really look at them after he shot himself. He sort of says, "I want to thank you for giving me this opportunity." It's almost like he still hasn't fully grasped what he's done, and by then it's too late because he fades away as he's walking out. That fade was something else. That that music that fade and. It's when Red Dwarf does stuff like this where, you know, maybe it's not quite as important as the Poppy's moments in mm. something like Blackadder Goes Forth, but Red Dwarf really can just switch off the comedy for 20, mm. 30 seconds and do something like this that was just absolutely gorgeous and really well thought out and Let's be frank, we've been talking about Quantum Leap all fucking episode. This could yeah. have been a plot line of Quantum Leap, and they would have done it as well as this. And they'd have done it, they'd have had more money as well, and I think it would have looked the same. Then after that really beautiful moment, the episode ends with Lister whining about forgetting to ask about Dallas Curry Houses, and the other three give him a kick in, which really fucking irritated me. The only part of it, I, I, it annoyed me as well, because it's very abrupt and kind of out of character. Completely out of character. Since when was Crichton ever going to use a nightstick on Lister? Well, he's got no behaviour protocols. Yeah. Mm. But the thing that kind of made it for me is the little moment between Rimmer and the cat where Rimmer looks at the cat and they nod. And then they they start it. Because Crichton just kind of follows, but they're the ones who actually attack (laughs) Lister. And it's it's kind of weird because, like we say, it's completely out of character. No matter what these people have done to each other, they've never really just beat the shit out of each other. You know, they'll do some unusual punishments to each other, but they'll never just out and out, not I'm going to kick your ass for this. And again, the nightstick, he hits him, what, six, eight times with a nightstick? You ain't going to get up for a month after that. You're going to have multiple broken bones, even with his fucking... Behaviour protocol's gone. There's no way Crichton would do that to Lister. I mean, also, it kind of weighs in with... You could look at it almost in a way of... Lister's done something really bad. Yes, they've got out of it, but he has done something monumentally stupid and nearly ruined everything. It, I can see, it, it, it almost feels like a moment for a different show where it'd be like, you know... yeah. If it was more of a serious, a more serious show, you'd almost imagine one of them go, "We're going to get out of this," and then I'm going to punch you in the mouth. Yeah. It goes to the slip slapstick that's yeah. through this episode, doesn't it? Really, I think um, just on your your comment, the thing about that, I just wanted to point out as well that in the beginning of the episode, Kat does agree with Rimmer. Yeah, there's a there's a per- there's a moment actually it's written in where Kat does agree with yeah. Rimmer. So it's, it's it's like a re- reflection of that part of the episode from the yeah. beginning that 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 cat's actually joining and i think that it's it, it's the beginning of that where cat actually is more open to agreeing with rimmer moving forward that you know they'll have that like kind of like banter mentality but yeah i, I get where you're coming from with the with the um the stick it's it is quite brutal maybe maybe that's why um cat's smell wasn't working as well because he's become more human and he's more open to things like agreeing with Rimmer. less of his cattiness is is coming through but uh yeah it's I, for some it, for some reason because it starts with Rimmer. if you watch it again slowly 
Rimmer kind of turns, looks at Cat, Cat looks at him, and they kind of share a moment and nod. And that's when they lean up. But Crichton just kind of gets up and falls like he knows what's going on anyway. I think it's kind of lessened a bit by the fact it is comically. The other two are quite comically like Cat is pogo sticking <laughs> yeah. on him. Palmy kind of enjoys the fact Rimmer's just giving him a kicking because he's not been able to give him a kicking for six series as much as he's wanted to because he's been soft light and now he's hard light. He's like, you know what? I'm I'm just finally going to kick him in the balls. You know, <laughs> it's he's put me through all sorts over the years. I'm just going to do it. I also like the touch that the, the four vagrants as well. Yeah, that it's it again. You know, using attention to detail, which I liked. You know, and it's not stated as well. You 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 would have to know you'll, that JFK law to actually understand that. Yeah. You know, so the fact that they've actually included that into it, it's um, I think is good. Very very briefly, I'm going to go through what I gleaned from the commentary and the extended and remastered. The commentary has all four cast members, and they admit that they did struggle without a live audience, which I thought was really cool that they um, were honest about that. And um, they, they point out various historical inaccuracies as well, which I hadn't spotted until I watched that. And Danny John Jules uh, doesn't even remember the extra final scene whatsoever because there is part of the remastered. There's an extra seven minutes. There's a few extra extended scenes and a couple of little extra ones, but the vast majority of the extra stuff in the extended version is a four or five minute scene at the end, which mm. you did talk about very briefly at the start of the episode, Kurt. And um, the only thing I really thought about that scene, which wasn't funny, didn't really add to it, but the model work was really good. And There's, there's also a bit in the extended ending where Rimmer's basically getting revenge is the whole sense of the extended ending. And part of it is he's getting revenge on Crichton by going around and vault testing everything by Crichton sticking his finger in stuff until he's... And Rimmer's got a, a baseball <laughs> mitt and Crichton's eyes will shoot out and Rimmer will catch them. And they've been doing this apparently on every socket going around. And I felt a bit weird about this because it's blatantly Crichton's main head again and not okay. spare head too. So Rimmer's punishing Crichton, who for this entire time basically has slept through the episode. Yeah, I can imagine is why part of it got this part got cut because it's just Rimmer being a bastard <laughs> to someone who's done nothing essentially. And the re the revenge on Lister, I can see, but it's kind of I can see why that gets cut too because you've just kicked the shit out of him. Why would you need to do it? Do something else to him? Well, anyway, it does vaguely try and explain why they didn't actually use the time drive again, but it's not very convincing. And the whole thing seems incredibly expensive for something that was eventually cut. Mm. It also, it's some, it gets past the what happened to the curry. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is quite funny because obviously this was cut and it's the extended ending. I don't think it ever comes back to they've got curry again. It doesn't get explained. <laughs> <laughs> so mm. uh, it's I don't think even there's even a throwaway line about it. So yeah, Lister's unless and I'd, I'd have to think about it watching the rest of the series to see if Lister eats another curry. But it's it's not explained how they've lost all the curry and then all of a sudden they've got curry. 
again. But I, I'd still see this as one of my favorite episodes, not the extended version. Mm. I think the extended version doesn't add anything to it, but this is so creative, so clever, so ambitious that it is still an, an absolute favorite of mine, despite its very glaring flaws. I, I, I like this episode. I do. What are your final thoughts on the episode, Carl? I do still enjoy the episode. It's a bit of an episode of two arbs for me. Some of the bits before they go back in time don't hold up, but once they go back in time, then it really goes up. And that's the best bit, especially the ending and that whole thing. It's just that little bit of build-up to me that doesn't work as well as... It doesn't hold up for me as much as it used to. But like Mm. you say, once they get back to Texas... It is a very, very good episode, and it's a very good indicator of where we're about to go with with the series and what we can do. Yeah, it's still a very good episode. What about you, Kurt? I would say the same, really. I think um, it's weaker in its first half, but I like it more than Carl does. The JFK thing stuff is always going to be something that I, I'm interested in in the first place. So I think it's uh, it's got some great gags in it, some great jokes. It's solid all the way through. Um, I never feel like I'm... I'm having a, a groan or anything like that at all. I think it's a really, really solid, very good episode. And it would definitely be in the top half um, if I was to rate Red Dwarf as a whole. So, yeah, I think it's a really classic and, uh, yeah, a, a good start and an unusual start with, as you say, learning, you know, things like the poignant moments with mm-hmm. um, with Kennedy and, and that sort of thing, which is the first inkling that we're going to get these these things um, throughout the the rest of the the shows run right up to modern day dwarf and mm. again it doesn't as I say for all its faults you know the the inklings there and the idea is there it doesn't always hit them but I do think it hits it here one episode down seven to go Kurt where can people find you on the internet find me on Twitter at R Muldrick at R M U L D R A K E you can find what I'm up to on there. I've started a YouTube channel, which I'm um, slowly building. Um, whether or not that's still on air when um, when this comes out is another matter. But um, <laughs> I'm enjoying it, though. I am enjoying some, learning some new stuff and doing some video editing and things like that. So it's um, it's something to push the boundaries on what I can do. So uh, I've been talking about Westworld on that and just doing 10-minute quick first reactions on there. Um, I've done a bit of Star Trek on there as well and a Thor um, trailer reaction. So I've done a few bits and bobs just to just to keep my um, my toes in the water on that and hopefully I'll develop that over time. But usual places, you know, X-Files podcast, uh, make it so the Star Trek Picard podcast, but find me on the Twitter. That's the best way to find me. Carl, what about you? Well, I'll be launching uh, my new podcast, which is Rewind and Remark, where I'll be reviewing all previous episodes of Mark Adams' previous podcast escapades. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> uh, I haven't really got a lot going on at the moment. so You've done that, Gags, like four or five times now, you did. Oh, I've got to come up with new ones. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, until I've got sake. something to do, I will come up with stuff. Uh, but <laughs> you can follow me at allmylinks.com. Uh, Mr. Carl, where there's all bits and bobs on there. But I hopefully, I keep saying this every episode, but hopefully I will have something soon to report on. In the meantime, just enjoy me coming up with fictional Mark Adams-related podcasts. You're, you're, you're a dickhead. If you are looking for me and not like old stuff, um, it's at Mark Adams HC on Twitter and Instagram. And I've only actually got one other 
active podcast at the moment, and that is called Chucky Vision, which is a podcast about the Chucky and Child's Play franchise. Very much looking forward to getting into Series 2 of Chucky when that's launched. At Chucky Vision on Twitter, if you're interested in that. So thank you very much for listening to this first episode of Series 7 of Shipwrecked and Comatose. And until next time, say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You've been jabbing it too hard. Do you know your Daleks from your Dreshigs? Or your Zygons from your Zagreus? Do you know what the TARDIS stands for? And do you know which Doctor Who stories featured Kevin Grimlock, the cyborg T-Rex that became the Doctor's companion? Then this is a Doctor Who podcast for you. I'm Baz Green and in each fortnight I chat to my son Ben. Hello. And the occasional guest as we cover 60 years of Doctor Who on TV, Big Finish and more. And I did really enjoy that one. Except that wasn't really actual pirates, it was badger pirates in space, but it was still piratey. Badger pirates in space? Yes. But I am willing to make an exception for pirates in this episode. Donald Sumter uh, is amazing. I love the fact that he's just, he just pops up. He just pops up, probably Rassilon, probably. Well, they do confirm later on he is. I think they do yeah, go there. He says between, like Rassilon yeah. the Redeemer. Of course he does, bloody hell. And he has, the, he has the gauntlet as well, which gives the hint of that. Yeah. I'm nodding profusely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very <laughs> proper classic Doctor Who as well, a lot of it as well. Yes. The In a week has done more of the show than the last five years. I, I do like how uh, Rossi Davis is kind of the PR spokesman for the Centuni special. That's quite fun. Yeah. And he's also saying, oh, well... Jody and Chibnall still have an episode left. I'm not going to tread on their feet, but he is 14, just so you know, for the filming purposes. And a week later, oh yeah, yeah, by the way, these guys are back. Just thought you'd want to know. Find us on the We Made This Network. And all good podcast providers. What about the bad ones? Yes, them too. Ah, good. Because somewhere there's danger. Somewhere there's injustice. Somewhere else, the tea's getting cold. You know, we probably should throw that tea away now. It has been sat there since 1989. Shipwrecked and Comatose, a Red Dwarf podcast, was created and produced by Mark Adams and Kurt North. You can find us on Twitter at Red Dwarf Pod, and we are part of the We Made This Podcast Network, which can be found online at WeMadeThisPod.com or on Twitter at WeMadeThisPod. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.